Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Good morning, church. It is a blessing to be here with you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the anointing of the Spirit of God on your people. Lord, there is nothing more that we hunger for or that we should hunger for than for your blessing. God, I pray that you would be able to look upon each one of us and say, good and faithful servant, come, receive the kingdom. Lord, this morning I pray, though someone may have walked into these room with a feeling of despair, exhaustion, or heartache, or some with just complete complacency and not sure what's going on in life, God, I pray that you would speak to us in spite of that. And Father, speak in spite of me. Amen. It's said that the Navy SEALs are the ultimate warriors. They go through a process of training that lasts six months known as BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL. In this process, it's three phases and includes a hell week. During that hell week, it is such an growing experience that 70% of the people that go through the process of this training quit within that one first two-week period. Along the way, during Hell Week, they're told to lift a telephone pole with a team of six to eight guys running with it over 150 miles in a period during that Hell Week for five days, sleeping less than four hours total. They sit in excruciating cold, face brutal mental challenges that would make anyone quiver in their shoes. And along the way, they're told, you don't have to go through this. You don't have to endure. You can stop whenever you want. The officers, while they're going through this, shivering in the cold, they'll be yelling at them, boy, you can just quit now. You could have a little cup of hot soup, hot cocoa for someone like you, you coward. You're not going to make it. Just go ring the bell. The infamous bell. This bell signifies that a recruit, a candidate for the SEALs, one who was striving to make it, quit. And the trainer would scream out, just go ring the bell. Give up. You won't make it. You're not cut out for this. Just go ring the bell. Many a man rung the bell 
pulled off their helmet and had to go through the ritual of humiliating experience, ringing the bell and placing their helmet down on the ground. I quit. I'm done. I want you to hear that explanation of the bell from one of the most celebrated Navy SEALs, Admiral William McGraven. And I want you to hear from him how he explains this in a short clip. Listen to what he says. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell, a brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to wake up at 5 o'clock. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. Many a Christian, many a Seventh-day Adventist Christian has rung that bell when it comes to witnessing. When it comes to sharing their story about Jesus, many a Seventh-day Adventist has yet to choose to say, I'm going to endure the hardship. I will become what God has called me to be. But instead, we hear the clang day in, day out, minute by minute. We hear the bell go off as many quit prematurely saying, this is too hard. This is too demanding. God, you want me to go where? You want me to do what? Go into all the world? Are you serious? I've got better things to do. I've got plans for my life. But you see, the early disciples, they were no better as well. When Jesus was crucified, there they stood before the cross, running and fleeing, saying, I quit, I'm done. I can't do this. And they went back to what they knew best, and that was fishing. Go fishing, young man. Go fishing. Go fishing for real fish. Don't follow my plan for your life. Don't follow the plan to reach the world. No, don't go do that. Just go fishing. Go ahead, ring the bell. Ring the bell. Ring the bell, says Satan. But you see, the story that we emerge into in Acts chapter 1 is a story of incredible conviction. And so would you turn with me to Acts chapter 1 to see the significance of what it meant for a dozen or more people to say, we are not going to ring the bell any longer. We will not ring the bell any longer. And the question we have to ask ourselves, why? Why didn't they ring the bell anymore? Why did they endure? How did they do it? What could possibly have compelled them to continue pushing the needle forward? Well, let's see. Let's see. But before we jump into this powerful story, I need you to understand something. Not everybody's ready for what is to come. 
Most churches, if you look at the life cycle of a church, it's like a bell curve. Starts out exciting in the first five years of a church plant. Oh man, there's energy. People are witnessing new believers coming. The lost flood in. There is excitement. Then the teenage years, some trouble emerges. And then, hey, we're working things out. We're getting somewhere. And they plateau. One scholar in the book of Acts said, the book of Acts is for churches who are young in heart or young in age because they take seriously what the book says and put it into action. So now the question is, how old are we? How old are you in heart? Let's look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, and we begin the story there. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Do not depart from Jerusalem. Stop. Why? What? Don't depart from Jerusalem. What's the significance of that? I.e., tell my story where you are. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Babylon. No, start right where you are. Oh. Oh. Well, that changes things. Well, what was this idea of the Spirit that was promised? It said the Spirit was promised. Well, Jesus told them and said, hey, you better hope that I leave because what is to come is better than even my presence, physical presence in your life. Wow. Better than the presence of God himself. And we continue reading, verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The setting that they were in, Jesus was crucified during the Passover, a period of time that celebrated when God's Spirit moved over Egypt. And the only people that survived were those that had the blood on the doorpost. And the gospel writers tell us that Jesus revealed himself for 40 days following the crucifixion. That meant the next feast was coming from the Passover, the book of Leviticus tells us, 50 days later, Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. So if Jesus had revealed himself for 40 days, that leaves only 10 days from when he left that earth to when they would receive the Spirit. In a week and a half, something powerful changed. What if only in a week and a half, something so powerful, so convicting, would change your life forever? And he goes on to explain, verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, hey, listen, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Whoa. And as he said these things, he was then lifted up and a cloud took him. The disciples initially missed the point. 
They just completely miss the point. Hey, listen, I'm about to baptize you with something you've never seen, felt, or heard. And then they point to, hey, what about the kingdom? When is that going to happen? That's like, a, that's like, hear me out for a moment, will you? That's like Pastor Christian and Amy saying, hey, we're going to go for a walk, kids. You stay here at home, and uh, we'll come back. And as they're on the walk, one of the girls runs up to them and says, Mom. Mom, my sock is lost. Your sock is lost? Well, that's okay. We can, we can find that. No problem. And guess what? The dog ran out of the house. Yeah. And, and my sister, I can't find her anywhere. Well, I'm, I'm sure they're there. It's okay. Don't worry. Oh, and, um, and the house is on fire. <laughs> what? Why didn't you get to that right away? Why didn't you get to the point? They were completely confused, talking about the socks, about the dog, about, and they missed the power of the point. The point was the Holy Spirit. The distraction of the disciples was that they were focused on the non-essentials. One commentator on this passage, he writes a beautiful thing. He says, Jesus does not respond to speculation surrounding what is not yet but insists that his disciples engage in a mission right now. While Jesus thereby agrees with the theological subtext of the apostles' query that the Spirit's outpouring does indeed signal a season of Israel's restoration, he applies it to their vocation. God's reign will be reestablished among God's people, not by some apocalypse from heaven, but by God's people on mission here on earth. Whoa. Solomon writes a powerful idea about vocation. In Ecclesiastes 2, 24, he says, a man and woman can do nothing better than eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their work. This too, I tell you, is from the hand of God. From without, who can eat or find enjoyment? Vocation is a powerful thing. Let me read you a modern understanding of vocation from Harvard Business School psychologist Timothy Butler. He offers the following advice about how to understand vocation, career, and a job. He says, these three words tend to be used interchangeably, vocation, career, and job, but they shouldn't be. They are vocation, career, and job. Yet vocation is the most profound of the three. And it has to do with your calling. It's what you're doing in life that makes a difference for you, that builds meaning for you, that you can look back on your later years and see the impact that you've made. A calling is something you have to listen for. You don't hear it once and then immediately recognize it. You've got to attune yourself to its message. The early reformers of the 15th, 16th, and 17th century championed this idea of the doctrine of vocation. The doctrine of vocation was understood in two parts, a primary calling and a secondary one. The primary one was this, that you would hear the call of God from darkness to light from death to life, that you would receive the shed blood of Jesus Christ in your heart. That was the first calling. But the second was, it was 
It was as Frederick Buckner writes. He says, It is described as the place God calls you to. It's a place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. It's the place where you fulfill God's mission on this earth. Martin Luther, one of those reformers who championed this idea of the doctrine of vocation, wrote this. He said, For what we do in our calling here on earth, in accordance to his word and command, he counts as if it were done in heaven for him. Therefore, we should accustom ourselves to think of our position and our work as sacred, well-pleasing to God, not on account of position or the work itself, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and work flow from. But unfortunately, many people think their work is not only a vocation, but also a vacation away from sharing the gospel. God, I need some place where I don't have to worry about sharing the gospel, please. This pastor and the previous one, they're talking about sharing my story. I'm tired. Let me just go to work. And instead of looking that vocation as a place of God's very vibrant space to share the story of God's work in your life, we look at it as a part of a vacation, a space and time where we can rest our mind from the voice of God and just do what we've been paid and called to do. C.S. Lewis says that career is a powerful place. It absolutely is. And simply you being a Christian, David, in a university. C.S. Lewis says the mere presence of a Christian in the ranks of a workforce will inevitably provide the antidote. It is. It's powerful. You just being a believer where you're planted, where you are, just that alone is powerful. Yet, I believe it is a mistake, a misalignment, and a misappropriation of the gifts that God has given you, and it is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of vocation, calling, when we imagine that it's only about having a good career, doing good work, and about being a good person. Friend, you've missed the opportunity to share about how you've gotten so good, about how you've received that goodness. Friend, it's about Jesus receiving the glory he deserves. Who are you giving the glory with the goodness you've been given? Francis Chan, in his best-selling sensation, Crazy Love, outlines this potential point that personality, unique traits, might not actually be the reason why you and I aren't sharing our faith. Because what do we hide behind at times? Hey, listen, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Oh, no, I'm shy. I, people, me, whoa, no. 
But you know what? Even on the extrovert side, we come up with these excuses. Hey, listen, I got a lot of people to talk to, not much to say to them, but I got a lot of them to speak with. I'm more on that introvert, extroverted side. But Francis Chan outlines something very interesting about our potential inability that we call it in our personalities or our unwillingness to share about Jesus. And he says that it's rather a spiritual problem, a problem that Jesus spoke out against in Revelation. A lukewarmness, maybe. He writes this first quote I want to share with you. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, coworkers, or friends. They do not want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people feel uncomfortable by taking private issues, talking about private issues like religion. While I was holding our baby girl this week, hey, it's Father's Day this weekend, right? Praise God for that. Fathers, love your children well. Disciple them into the kingdom. But as I was holding her and, and I was thumbing through a C.S. Lewis index, which our very own Janine Gofar wrote this incredible compilation on C.S. Lewis, in this same vein of lukewarmness, C.S. Lewis, writing a letter to a friend, says, one sins if one's real reason for silence in evangelism is looking a fool. This is exactly Jesus' point that he makes in Matthew 10. He says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge him before the Father. But whoever denies me, I too will deny before the Father. The conviction sits heavy. God calls each, every one of us to move beyond personality, to move beyond personal traits, and he says it's about the kingdom, and it's about something powerful. It's about Jesus in you, empowering you to share. Francis Chan goes on to sh share a series of lukewarm statements, and let me just read one more. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume action for, is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of his followers. The brother of Jesus, James highlighted this, James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what the word says. James 4.17, anyone then who knows what is good and ought to do it but doesn't, sins. You see, the question we must ask ourselves here in this very place is why do we exist in Loma Linda? Why was there a vision cast over a hundred years ago that we should be here and doing what we do best? To continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. Friends, what does that mean then? 
That means that we as a people who live here in Loma Linda comprehend the fact that it's not just about a career. It's not just about getting some medical training and then going out in the workforce. We exist because we understand that vocation is not about a vacation, but about enabling us to pursue the gospel further. We want to make man whole because we recognize that you're not just a body, flesh, and blood, and bone, but you have a spirit that needs to be tended to. And our professors are eager to teach you how to engage the spiritual well-being. I've met many a doctor, nurse, technician, medical staff who comprehends this. One of our very own doctors that I got to interact with, beautiful things that they did at the bedside. I was amazed and shocked and in tears. But I've also met many people who look at their career in medicine as simply a job. A job to get paid for. A job to pay for the things that they love. I don't know what career you have, what you feel like you've been called to. But if you're not using it for the glory of God, where you are, you're missing out on the calling Jesus has for your life. There's two important Greek words that were pointed out by Jesus right there in the text we read this morning. The first one that Luke uses, the author of Acts, is power. Power denoted in Greek is dunamis, from which we get dynamite. And in the Greek, literally, the definition is a power that can be visibly seen. It is a power that was received when the Holy Spirit came upon them. The second word was witness. Witness translated in the Greek is martus. Martus is where we get the word martyr. Literally in Greek, this translation here points out to the fact that being a witness will lead you to maybe take the most significant loss of your life, losing that which is most precious to you or losing someone who is most precious to you. It's an indication that being a witness calls us to go further to places that we might just be uncomfortable with and might be dangerous. It's been over 10 years since a choir teacher at Adventist school that I was helping at prayed over me for the Holy Spirit. He said to me, Philip, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. I was like, baptism of the Holy Spirit? I've never heard of that. Or I wasn't paying attention when it was explained to me. And he prayed over me one night, praying that the Holy Spirit would baptize me in a powerful way, enabling me to be more used than I'd ever been used before. And it was during that very year, that very year, that I truly became a Christian. I had grown up Seventh-day Adventist all my life, but I didn't have an encounter with the living, working Jesus. That very year, he also then prayed for me again, and man, we had sweet seasons of prayer, and it was during that year I also understood that there was a call for my life, a specific one in the area of pastoral ministry, and I dedicated my entire life to serving the kingdom. 
in this form. I don't know what your calling is, but I know no matter what it is, it is always to use your calling for the kingdom more than just what you do. So the question I want to ask you is, some of you might be wondering, God, is the Spirit moving and working in my life? I want to ask you a series of five questions. Question number one, to ask and ponder if the Spirit's working in your life, do I feel conviction for sin and holy living? John chapter 16 brings out this idea that he, Jesus, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment through the Holy Spirit. Number two, do I regularly hear God speak to me and follow his leading? John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and they follow. Question number two, do I attempt to be obedient to God's basic tenets of faith in Scripture? Acts 5, 32, the Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Question number four, do I sense a spiritual power and motivation to do things, holy things for God? Acts 1.8, what did it say? You will receive power to be my witnesses. And then question number five, do I have a great love for God and those he died for? They're penned in the book of Acts of Apostles by Ellen White, a beautiful page there in one sentence says, after the descent of the Holy Spirit, the disciples were so filled with love for him and those whom he had died for. I want you to ponder those five questions in your heart. Do you feel any of those? Do you sense any of those? If you're answering no, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a sense and burden for the lost. I, I don't always necessarily feel a conviction for my sin in my life. I, I struggle to be obedient regularly. Hey, me too. But as a result of the no's that we may say, it drives us then closer to the source of where we need to be to our knees yearning for the power of the overwhelming Spirit of God. And so this morning, where do you start? Where do we move then from the Acts chapter 1? Where do you start? You start where you are. Start right here, right now. First thing is, start in your heart. Yearn to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Spend time in His Word. Meditate on it. Spend time praying throughout your day. Well, then after you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, then what do you do? Listen to the Spirit's conviction. But I want to tell you something. Don't you dare pray for the Spirit if you have no intention to obey the Spirit. Don't be praying there, Lord, lead my life. And then when you hear His voice, you read His word, you sense the conviction and say, ah, not for me. Acts 5.32 tells us, the spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Sometimes it's a lack of obedience that has caused our spiritual apathy. It indicates it's necessary to have a full trust in God, a full trust in him. 
Number three, then, after you've received this yearning, you've received the power of the Spirit, you've yearned for it in your heart, then start to live a life worthy of the gospel, empowered by that Spirit. And it starts at home. The first place you need to start is at home and with those who are closest to you. What good is it to have the Holy Spirit but nothing then more beyond that if your family can't recognize it? Then share your story where you are. Some of us need to pray for the baptism of our careers. They need to become hotbeds of the gospel going forth. It's more than just being a fine with your hands. It's more than just being great with your words to kids, teaching them mathematics or English or history or whatever you might do as a career, cleaning, writing, driving. It's time our careers got baptized. It's time we woke up that these are vehicles for the gospel. It's time we recognized you don't need to go overseas right away. Jesus did say, hey, go further, go beyond. But he said, start where you are. If you want to change the world for just one person, don't ever, ever ring the bell and give up sharing the story of Jesus. Some people yearn and say, hey, I remember the early rain happened then, and now I want to see that latter rain come. Oh, God, man, I tell you, you can have the always, all the time rain when you pray for his spirit. 